Welcome to the New Zealand China Council podcast. I'm Rachel Maidment, Executive Director of the Council. The podcast you are about to hear is the recording of a panel discussion moderated by Fran O'Sullivan at the launch of an independent report commissioned by the Council, How Many Eggs and How Many Baskets? An update on NZ China trade patterns. The purpose of the report is to obtain greater understanding of New Zealand's trade with China and articulate the risks and opportunities this presents. The panel discussants were John Ballingal, economist and report author from Sense Partners, Sharon Zollner, ANZ's chief economist, and Rodney Jones, principal, Wigram Capital. For the podcast, we'll skip forward to the panel discussion, but the report itself can be found on our website, nzchinacouncil.org.nz. Our moderator, Fran O'Sullivan, started off by asking Sharon and Rodney for their quick takes on the research presented by John Ballingal. So, yeah, no, it's certainly a very timely report. I think uh, there is huge interest in global trade at the moment. And and it sounds kind of silly, but I'm probably guilty of thinking about trades as numbers on a spreadsheet. And I think what we've all realised in the last few months is that it's actually a very complicated logistical exercise of moving large quantities of of one thing or another uh, between different countries, which is something we always sort of took for granted. And now in recent months, we've realised just how challenging that can be. Uh, So this is a time of of real disruption uh, to exports and imports. And and one of the most interesting anecdotes I heard recently is is a completely uh, unexpected benefit of being a commodity exporter, and that is that the ships are still coming to New Zealand. And they are not coming here out of, uh, because they're doing us a favour, and they know we really, really want this year's fashions uh, immediately. They're coming here to pick up our exports, and they're dropping off the imports uh, on the way. Uh, And so our imports have actually been less disrupted than um, many actually larger countries that that are more significant customers. Um, So that's uh, (laughs) just an interesting way of thinking about commodities, because of course we've been having this debate for a very long time about how New Zealand needs to move up the value-add chain and diversify away from primary products and whatnot. But um, we saw it in 2008, and we're seeing it again now, that actually selling food is a pretty resilient form of exports. If you make cars, for example, your exports stopped in 2008. If you make planes at the moment, you're in a spot of bother as well. So food is, is a pretty good bet. Diversification is a very strong theme of this report, and of course there are different flavours of that. Diversification of, of markets is one, but also diversification of goods. But I think uh, this COVID shock has shown us that diversification is not enough in and of itself. If you've got a, a fixed export basket with 10 trading partners rather than one, that's great. But this shock hit everyone, not quite all at the same time. But what was actually really key uh, for our exporters is to be incredibly nimble and to have strong relationships across a number of, of countries and a, and a really fat list of contacts <laughs> that you could call on. Our exporters are reporting that a, a few very large orders are falling over and being replaced by numerous small orders from a whole lot of different places as people trying to build some resilience into their own supply chains. So, so having that flexibility to, to change course and, and, and meet those changing requirements through such a challenging period, I think, is, is going to be quite key going forward. Um, I'll, I'll leave it there for now. Okay, Thank Rodney. Thanks. Um, diversification. So I'll start with the specific and then get to the general. I mean, <clears throat> there's two aspects. One is a global shock like we've had this year. We've, we've got to think that economies move together. So whether you sell to Indonesia or Singapore or the UK or China, it's a common shock. 
and our shocks, whether it's the GFC in, in 08 or the Asian crisis in 98, tend to be, affect all our trading partners equally. So what are the gains you know, from diversification? It's really you're selling into the global economy. And I think this is one of the things that, um, one of the mysteries that I think would be worth exploring is, if you, so last night I went back, I like lo lots of long data, so I went back to 1870 and looked at our long-term export growth rate, both in sterling and US dollars. And over the 150 years, we've grown 6% a decade, 6% a year on average for that 150 years. And that's pretty consistent decade after decade, except the 1930s, of course. But outside of the 1930s, that's the typical growth rate. And that's what we've done in the last decade. Even as China has grown so fast, and I always like to include Hong Kong because of the port in the data. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, China's now up at 30%, which is kind of where Asia was just before the Asian crisis, and then it fell away. So, you know, we're up at 30%. We've gained tremendous market share in China. Exports in China have actually been quite weak over the last decade. Exports to GDP in China have fallen, and we're seeing this now as China turns inward, this dual circulation, this will continue. And yet New Zealand's in quite a special niche with the food, that we have something where, yeah, they can build their local champions, but it's, it's pretty difficult. They don't have a comparative advantage, whereas we have a clear comparative advantage. And, and so we should expect to gain, continue to gain share in, in China. But the question is, why aren't our exports overall growing faster? And why are we stuck? It's actually 6% a year. It's a pretty miserable growth rate. And that's why exports to GDP are, are so low. So that's one of the, the questions that come out of this. Now, then there's the question of, of diversification. And I actually, my own view is that shouldn't... Yeah, the government can look for new markets. And the free trade agreement was a tremendous kickstart for New Zealand. And you could argue maybe over the last decade, our exports would have grown much more slowly. <coughs> without the FDA. That didn't happen. But in the end, businesses make that decision where to sell, and we shouldn't interfere with that. And so then it's a question, what sort of insurance should we sell to businesses or provide to businesses if they're very concentrated in the China market? And, and this has become a question now with the breakdown in relations between the US and China and what the future holds over the next decade, is can we really provide that insurance? In a sense, for the last decade, we have provided insurance. The government's worked very hard at the bilateral relationship that's helped exporters. But going forward, we're probably not in the position to sell that same insurance. And so a diversification really is up to the business. They get paid for that risk. They sell to China for taking that risk. We don't insure New Zealand businesses against the Alpine Fault, and yet we know one day the Alpine Fault will go. The geopolitical tensions represent kind of that seismic shock that's very difficult to manage if things were to escalate further. Hopefully, we get a change in US president and we get some more stability, but, um, and we don't have to relive the last few years. But anyway, so that's, that's my point. I think there's a question around the role of government and whether diversification, as you point out in your report, it's not really the role of government. And so is New Zealand overexposed? And just to end... Um, Brian Easton came out with his book, and one thing I took away from that on the economic history of New Zealand was I was brought up to think that the UK going into the EC was a tremendous shock that changed us in the 70s. He argues, and I've kind of come around to the view, it was actually the, the wool shock that occurred in 66, we devalued in 67. That was the shock. So that was the concentration of products rather than markets and the rise of polyester and synthetics. And so today, in some ways, that's not going to happen again with food. 
And, and so the, the story we've carried around in our heads actually is the wrong one. I didn't realise that. So mm -hmm. thanks very much. Um, so just, I mean, obviously the subtext to this has been the recent um, argument that New Zealand does have too many eggs in the China basket, and this has sort of come up in political fora in particular, but without much challenge really at the moment. There's not much challenge I can see out of that, and the talk out of uh, ministers at times is about the need for more diversification without actually talking about the elephant in the room, which they've got wrong anyway, because it's not an elephant according to you, it's actually a little thing which we don't worry about. But anyway, um, I just wonder really whether it is sensible to freak out um, in an overt way uh, about what really is the one big meaningful trade access that has been achieved since CER. And the, the rhetoric that comes through is one of dependency and exposure, but it's also opportunity and access, and I wonder if we're just framing it the wrong way. And I'd like some comments on that. Yeah, look, I think that's a, a very valid point. Um, you know, victims of our own success uh, with China, obviously we've, we've had CPTPP and that's helped as well. But I, I think it's true, in most of our big markets, potentially large markets, they're either growing fairly slowly or there's pretty high barriers to trade to get the things that we produce in there. So I think it's entirely understandable that our trade to China has grown so, so very rapidly. I think it's, um, yeah, I, I didn't find that a surprise at all. And I find it a surprise when people are surprised at that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any comments from our other two panelists? Yeah, I think uh, after the GFC, China was the only growth gain in town, so it was mm. quite... Uh, it will never be able to disentangle the impacts of that from the free trade agreement, but it certainly did mean that FTA was very well-timed and that we were well-positioned to take advantage of those opportunities. Um, and so far with what's happening with COVID, it's looking like China's going to be one of the countries coping with that best as well. Um, their retail sales are still pretty subdued, but in a relative sense, they're looking like they will outperform again. So I don't see our exposure to China shrinking anytime soon. Um, over the longer term, with climate change, I think there are going to become more countries dependent on importing food, and that will naturally open up opportunities for New Zealand, including to Australia. So at some point, I think our exposure to China will naturally peak as other countries start to address their own emerging food security issues. Yeah, but I, I do think that's something we need to push back against. I mean, trade ministers will always mm. talk about diversification. Yep. That's their job. Um, but no one else really should be right now. It, it's, <laughs> just not, it, it's just not an issue. And the point is, you have to think about the sort of shock where we would lose from something in China. And the shock in China is going to affect everyone we trade with. Mm. Mm -hmm. So you can't, there's risks you can't diversify. Mm. And China exposure, I don't think you can yeah. I mean, one of the calls frequently from the business sector is when there's a little rustle, if you like, between, uh, at the political level, uh, Hong Kong, for instance, and, um, you know, the recent statements and actions by our government and, um, you know, the, the counter uh, comments out of the embassy and out of uh, China itself. Do we overreact in the business or should business just actually get on with it and blot out the political noise? What's your feeling on that? Can I jump in? Yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think we, we overreact continuously. I, I think we're just better off letting it slide, accepting this is the way. And, you know, we, want, we have an independent foreign policy. That's the whole point. We've had it since 1984, 85. That's who we are. And, you know, you can't really mix. It's harder going forward to mix foreign policy and trade. Mm -hmm. And... You know, as a country, we need to be free to express our values. And businesses, 
Well, that, you know, they have to live with it. Uh, and there's no evidence. I mean, Taiwan sells 40% of their exports to China as an economy. Australia's at 40, if you include Hong Kong. I like always including Hong Kong because of the port and, and, and China now includes Hong Kong as well. <laughs> um, so, you know, so uh, we're not actually that exposed. And I think the reactions, the emotion level swings too high. There's going to be bumps in the road. That's normal now, particularly, you know, just given how unstable we are with the breakdown in US-China. We've got to accept that the stability we've been accustomed to is not there. I'll just point out that it's such a symbiotic relationship. They need our imports as much as we need to sell them to them. Uh, so and no country wants to see food price inflation. It's really, really bad for social stability. So there are constraints on them as well. Yeah, uh, questions from the floor. Um, don't be shy. I think that was a, a really uh, interesting comment right there at the end. And we, you know, we, we are the number one exporter of food, and we keep hearing that that does put us in a very uh, comfortable position. But, and you know, Australia is more exposed, but we don't have minerals, other things. Most of our trade is actually able to be substituted to other markets. Uh, so, you know, what are your thoughts on our relative risk vis-a-vis -vis other countries that don't have products that are so easy to substitute? Yeah, I mean, Australia has a concentration of iron ore and gas and coal. So they also face a shock at some point when China has built enough one day and then that it's taken a decade longer than we thought, it's still going. But one day that point will arrive. So yeah, that is a point. And I think that's partly the answer as to why our export growth didn't pick up in the last decade. There was a lot of diversion towards China that can always be diverted away, except for crayfish. Yes, Australia and New Zealand have similar shares of exports going to China. Australia's is a little larger, but uh, essentially they are very exposed to China's investment cycle, which is very exposed to the government decisions. It's very public driven. Uh, we're more exposed to consumption, which traditionally is a much smoother kind of evolving phenomenon. So one would expect on average our exports to be uh, less volatile than Australia's to China. Uh, thank you, and uh, thank you, John, for the report which the New Zealand International Business Forum was very pleased to help co-sponsor, and thanks to the panel. We've talked a lot about economic risk, but the issue here is often political risk. And of course, Rodney raised quite correctly that there's no insurance necessarily that the government can give for this, but there is at least perceived to be a political risk. So risk, so how can that best be managed? Don't tell me, ask the politicians. Um, <laughs> no, okay. I so, so I actually think, for the reasons we've talked about today, in terms of our exports, the middle class, the importance of buying, the importance of the Chinese system in ensuring the middle class continues to expand, and the sensitivity of the numbers earlier in the year, that income levels are still quite low when you look at you know, inequality and the number of people earning less than um, you know a thousand dollars a month is still very significant, and, and so you know and the need to buy high quality food products. So I just think we're kind of our exports, you know, and which is what is outside of that political cycle, which is the same with Taiwan in a way. Even as tensions rise and fall between you know either the KMT or the DPP in government. The exports carry on and the Chinese dependence on semiconductors and technology remains there. And so we're kind of in a similar position. So the political relationship has to be managed as a 
political relationship in our kind of broader foreign policy framework. And the anchor of that is our independent foreign policy. In a sense, what's been, and I think we're in a stronger, my personal view, I mean, it's a little bit off topic, is that we're in a stronger position now. And, you know, with um, Foreign Minister Payne dashing off to, to, to Washington in the last week just emphasizes our point of difference. And that in some ways we can relax a bit now with both the US and Australia having moved so far away, we actually have a lot more space. And I actually think that gives us a lot more freedom and we can kind of relax a bit. That's my personal view. I think there are two other forms of insurance that are already in play as well. First of all is the, the strength of the relationship between the two countries and our institutions that's been supported by the Free Trade Agreement and, and those developments over time. So I think that's very helpful. The second thing is that the, the perception that we just put stuff in, in containers and ship it over there and go straight to the consumer is not how it works. We now have supply chains that are integrated across many, many countries. We have a lot of Chinese investment here. We have New Zealand investment over there. Those sort of supply chains means that um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to use political weapons necessarily to, to shut off trade or investment because you're, you're hurting yourself uh, given the, the two-way investment flows and, and trade flows. So I think those are two, two sort of natural hedges as well. And I think Fran made the point yesterday when I was chatting to her, is, and this is something I think would be great for someone to dig up the numbers. What percent of New Zealand exports are actually by Chinese-owned firms? More than 50%. Mm. It would actually be interesting to know that, that number. Mm. I don't know it. No. Well, look at Deere, it's this Fonterran tattoo of the New Zealand-owned. Yes, but then you have other, you know, you have other smaller companies, mm -hmm. Infant Formula, um, we do have investment where, you know, what percent is that? Is it, I don't know the number. I couldn't tell you. The, uh, I don't really know what the question is, but I, I'm sort of interested in this question of, of, of actually going beyond just talking about countries and talking about segments of countries because, you know, for our company, we're increasingly in a situation where we have very finite um, raw material, if you will, uh, and we need to make sure we're maximising the absolute value of that. And that's increasingly going to be, you know, the, the upper middle class in, in a number of markets. And I wonder whether, obviously, I guess, John, your comments around this, putting this into the diversification question, because I suspect, you know, you get this debate, is it too much in China, or is it, should we do more in Japan, whereas in effect, could actually be we need to sell more to 100 different countries, but a certain sliver of, uh, of their sort of socio-economic makeup is, is the sweet spot we should be in. So just as a comments on that. Yeah, look, I think diversification can take many forms. It's not just markets, products. It's cities within large countries. It's different distribution channels, you know, online, retail, food services for, for Fonterra, for example. So it takes many, many different shapes. You can um, diversify in terms of the demographics you're trying to hit now and in the future. Um, so I, I think there's a whole range of different diversification options that, that businesses can pursue. But that debate certainly doesn't come out in the sound bites, sound bites on the radio. And I think it's an important one to get out there. 
Yeah, of course, we're always trying to move up the value-add chain, and that's where you get the premium, uh, the premium profits, but it's also where you get the vulnerability, because you're talking discretionary spending at that point. So in China, well, all around the world, foods that go into high-end restaurants are really struggling. Uh, so I think at New Zealand, we've actually got quite good diversification. At one end, we're selling venison and, and rock lobster into Beijing restaurants, and at the other end, we're selling sacks of milk powder that are pretty much undifferentiable from anyone else's in, into quite poor countries. While it's good to have a premium, I think it, a bit of diversification in that mix is not entirely a bad thing because, you know, they say selling toilet paper in a recession is a good bet. Well, selling basic food in a global recession is not a bad bet either. The um, figures you presented, John, show New Zealand in a fairly sweet spot uh, on that graph at the start. Um, obviously, Brazil and others are ahead, uh, but however, and certainly ahead of uh, New, uh, Australia. But I think one of the points that the Council has been pondering is um, on the ground, uh, main competitors to New Zealand are very actively investing in areas such as market international education. And other countries also looking to COVID to and you know, to China to pull them through COVID, much as what happened with the GFC. So, how competitive should we be, and how and should this be a concern for our exporters that others, more aggressive and hungry, might also get in on the action and push us back proportionately? <laughs> I think they call that on the hospital pass. Thank you. <laughs> well, that's a good question. No, it is. It is a very good question. Thanks, Fran. Um, look, I think right now there's a whole lot of countries that would love to have a larger export share in China. A whole lot of them. Right now, a lot of countries would be happy getting export revenue from any source. And I think it's true, there will be more competition in, in China as we come out of this uh, recession. But I would say we're well placed to take advantage of it because we've been there a long time, we're trusted, we've got a whole range of different products going through a whole range of different channels. So I, th I think we've got a, a head start there. There will be others that come in hungry, and I think after the global financial crisis, around tourism, for example, I understand that Australia was quite aggressive in their marketing uh, in China and went a lot earlier than New Zealand did. We need to be careful not to make that mistake, and I don't think we are. I'm, I think Pete Crisp was gone, but um, I think you know, he's got a nice big budget increase to make sure our presence remains lifted in China so that when others come trying to knock on the door, we're still top of mind. So I think we are well placed, but you're right, it's going to be tough. Um, Steph Honey, you have a question you want to raise, oh. and then perhaps, sorry, who was going to comment? Well, oh, well, you, no, way you go. <laughs> well, actually, I was going to make an observation on that, that hunger. I mean, I think one of the, the things that, you know, has been a bit of a worry is this phase one trade deal between China and the US, you know, there are big expectations on China to purchase US agriculture exports, including, you know, beef, where we have a lot of real, a very important market niche there and so on. I was actually, my, my question was actually going to be um, just on the food and agriculture narrative. I mean, I don't disagree with that at all. I very strongly believe in the role of food trade, food security, including for a net food importer like China. I think, though, it is worth bearing in mind that um, at least some of the stuff I've read recently suggests that by 2030, China is going to be the biggest producer of agriculture in the world. And, you know, from my own visits there, it's very clear that they are pumping a lot of money into the sector. They are very keen to develop their own productive base in that area and dairy products and others. So, you know, I think 
it's absolutely the right narrative and it's something I really believe in, but we do also have to uh, be aware that there are risks. But actually, my, my question was going to be around, uh, and I think picking up on the point that Franz just made, some of that, I guess you could say, kind of the new economy, not just tourism and education, but what about digital services, video gaming, all those other things? I mean, what do you see as the potential there? It's obviously a pretty crowded field too, but we, we do have some good niche products that I think we could put in. I mean, has that been, was that what something you looked at as well, John, or, you know, others on the panel? Yep. I certainly did look at the services data, but services data is pretty rubbish, to be honest. Our exports of services to China are dominated by tourism and export education. There's a, a pretty small amount of business services, and within that there might be some you know, gaming and, and that sort of thing. But at, at the moment, there's two ways of looking at it. There's a lot of potential. Um, I don't know enough about digital services um, to, to explain where we might go with it. But right now, we're certainly not concentrated in China in digital services. So the only way is up. Yeah, my having, I just think with the direction in China that's unfolded over the last decade, um, starting with the Great Fire War and then the building of domestic champions, you know, once upon a time, one would have imagined, say, a zero being able to operate in China. That would be extremely unlikely to happen today. So, and, and then the questions around data security, where you keep your data. I mean, services are, is really quite closed relative to what we may have thought a decade ago. And so some of those high growth things we may have thought about didn't happen and now would be unlikely to happen. So where we're lucky with food is we don't know how China's strategy is going to work out, turning in wood, they're doing just fine in the COVID. Where we're lucky is we're something with a very clear defined, and I, I actually would be skeptical that an SOE operating in the north will compete with New Zealand ultimately. Sure, they'll be producing that, but as incomes grow, that top level will grow and the demand for New Zealand product will grow. So I don't actually worry about import substitution affecting New Zealand. But, but in services, you know, it, there is a major blockage. Yeah, I mean, they're water poor and that's just going to get worse. And that will always be the case, whereas in digital services we have no natural advantage over anyone else. The natural disadvantages, of course, are less in terms of the tyranny of distance, but I can't see any particular reason why we're going to succeed more than others in that space. Perhaps taking advantage of the collective of economists or whatever. A disagreement. Yeah. <laughs> I guess trade happens against um, overall economic health in different, different countries and, and that's the basis on which um, people trade between each other. But um, with that, I mean, how would, you, how would you look at the overall set of risks uh, that China's facing at the moment? I mean, when it faces a, a shock like this and and how its systems are geared up um, against those risks to cope. Uh, now, how do you think about what the, the Chinese cascade of risk, if you might, looks like, which might then affect its overall international performance? Okay, as someone who's been talking about China risk for the last 20 years, maybe I should start. I, I think there's two things um, that, that have really helped the China model. I was a, a skeptic as a child of the 80s reforms here mm. and then working in Asia for 30 years. You know, I was really skeptical on that the socialist market economy would work. And I thought over time, the market economy proportion would have to grow much faster. Whereas the socialist part has been much more resilient than I would have thought 10 years and certainly 20 years ago. Um, but I think there's two factors that help China enormously. One is the failure of the West 
and Japan, the fact we have negative interest rates in the bulk of the developed world and zero interest rates just allows this sort of economic model to keep going. Um, and then at the same time, whenever, and then they have a vulnerability. I've talked about this in terms of their dollar exposure, particularly Belt and Road was funded in dollars. But then the Federal Reserve at the slightest hiccup in the US equity market floods the world with dollars. And so I think both these factors actually, ironically, enhance the Chinese system. And that's why they're coming out of this. I mean, there's going to be only three economies that grow this year, China, Taiwan, and Vietnam. And that's it. I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> I just said that China's biggest vulnerability is its export dependency. So even if they keep COVID out or it's really suppressed domestically, they're not going to dodge a bullet, just like us. I'm just going to invite each of the panellists to perhaps leave a parting thought and then we'll ask Rachel to close because I'm conscious um, we might have started later but some of you have to get back to work. Parting comment. Um, it's been a, a pleasure to be able to, to do this work for you. I love nothing more than digging into massive spreadsheets of uh, um, trade data. I know that says a lot about me um, and, and I'm okay with that. I've had therapy. Um, but look, it's been a delight to, to share some of the key messages with you. The report itself is a, a bit of a doorstop, 60 pages of tables and charts, but um, if you need a number at any time, there'll be one there that you can use. And I hope that it really does prompt a, a more informed discussion about this really important issue. Uh, yeah, I'd just say that I'm actually quite optimistic that the New Zealand-China trading relationship will prove pretty robust because it's of such great advantage to, to both countries and also we are so small, we don't intimidate anybody, and sometimes that works to your advantage. And I'm rarely called an optimist, but on this occasion I am optimistic. Um, I, I just think that it's, we're kind of in the right spot, selling the right goods, and diversification's kind of a fool's errand. Take it. If there's money lying on the table, you take it now. Thanks for listening to the panel discussion. We hope it's provided some insights on one of New Zealand's most important trading relationships. You can read the full research report on our website, nzchinacouncil.org.nz. Also on our website, you can find more New Zealand China Council podcasts or by searching for New Zealand China Council on SoundCloud, Spotify and iTunes. Thanks for listening.